Matthew chapter 12, picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, in verse 9. And uh, I was thinking, even just this morning, uh, trying to get my thoughts back to where they were a couple of weeks ago. You can write it all on paper and you can remember it, but, but uh, you always, like, right before you get up to speak, you've got to get your mind, like, right in that place, you know? And I, I was thinking to myself that there are so many times, and you've probably had this experience too, there are so many times that I've witnessed to people over the years, and, and you, you know, you, you've, you've seen this too, when you start to talk to them, it's almost like frustrating when they agree with you. You know what I mean? Because they'll just kind of nod their heads and then they'll start to talk in return and they'll start to say all sorts of things about the Lord, meaning the God who's revealed in the Bible, but it'll become very obvious that they, they, they've not read the Bible, right? And that, and that becomes at the same time frustrating and, and a little heartbreaking. You see it all the time that people have incredible opinions about God and, and, and who He is and what He's done, what His nature is, what He's like, how He acts towards people, how He acts towards them. And people will sometimes say things like, well, my God is this or my God is that. And they're imposing kind of their personal desires or their, 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 their personal impressions of what they think God ought to be upon the God who is revealed in the Bible. That's a very bad thing to do. And, but aside from it being very bad, it's also very common. And even among those who in ancient times the Word of God was originally given, the Jewish people, the same thing went on. It went on among the Jews and it goes on among the Gentiles and churches and places where the Bible is read today. And one of the things that I see in this passage today is that there are basically two large groups of people. Not that it's always right to bunch people into groups, but there's two groups of people that encountered Jesus, and one of them, just on the surface, looks like they're obviously evil and wrong, and the other one on the service surface kind of looks sort of exciting because they, they kind of receive Jesus, but they're equally wrong. And the reason that they're wrong is because both of these groups of people have expectations already in place about who God is and who the Messiah is, and they are imposing these views upon not only God, but upon everyone who will listen to them, and, and, and upon even Jesus himself when he's there. The people had an understanding from within themselves, an expectation that to some extent they're religious leaders to some extent their interpretation of God's law, to some extent just they themselves had developed over centuries. And here comes Jesus 
not quite fitting into that. And so, in the case of one of these groups of people, they wanted to destroy him. In the case of the other of these groups of people, they wanted to immediately make him their king. Right? Both were wrong. And the reason they're wrong is because they don't, they didn't really read and believe and study and understand the word of God. It's as simple as that. It is impressed upon this preacher today that we as Christians more than ever need to be studying our Bibles and to know our Bibles well. I said at the Bible study this past Thursday night, and I think this is true, that it's one thing to know the Bible and it's another thing to think biblically. Do you understand the difference? You can read the Bible and you can ascertain certain facts from the Bible. But if you presume upon what you read in the Bible to impose your own religious sensitivities or expectations, you're thinking carnally, even if you understand the words that are written on the page. The groups here, one group is the, the group of religious leaders, the other group is just the masses, the multitudes who followed him. They're not really thinking biblically, right? Because it is the Bible which spells out for us who God is, who Jesus, his son, is, and Jesus actually is God in the flesh, as you know, and what Jesus came to do. It's very important, brothers and sisters, that you are abiding in God's word. It's very important that you are reading God's word for yourself. It is very important that you are coming to church and listening to these sermons. I apologize that it's just Lou standing up here and talking. And it sounds a lot like I just drone on and on probably. But you know what? I don't really apologize for that. Because I know that this is needed. You ought to come out if you can for Bible studies. Various Bible studies that are going on Thursday nights. If you're a man, you should try to come out with the men. If you're a lady, you should try to come out with the women. Kids should come to that thing that Angela does. You should, you should come out on youth group when that starts up again. There are opportunities to come and sit in on listening to verse by verse teaching in God's Word. It's, you know, it's funny. Church is like a rock in society. In that society, as time goes by, has things that change. Dramatically, And this is why I shared with you my observation about going to that other church last weekend. There were things about it that when you walk in was like, this is completely different than what I'm used to on Sunday, right? You walk in the building and the foyer is like one of the wings of Woodbridge Mall. I mean, really, you walk in and it's all lit up and there's like little, looks like little shops on either side. And, and I couldn't even see from one end all the way to the other. That was the foyer. Right, And then over on one side were the doors that entered the sanctuary. And when I walked into the sanctuary, uh, it is without question the largest building that is not a sports arena that I've ever been in in my life. Right? I mean, it, it has to seat four to 5,000 people at once. And, and they have multiple services that are pretty well attended on, on every Sunday morning. And then, you know, we went up to the first balcony to, to, to take in the, the service. There are multiple balconies. 
and 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 we sat there and we heard the sound check of their band which sounded like they were playing a CD i mean it was so like just perfect and and powerful and wonderful and loud and there were tv cameras all over the place on these gigantic uh, boom arms that would not fit in this room and i i mean it could really like like blow you away and it's like but then but then like i said when the service started and we began to sing it was the same and we were just singing we sang some songs that we sing here all the time and you're just you're you're lost in just worshiping god and it doesn't matter the the surroundings and then when the guy began to preach i mean it looked different because he had a he had a a a screen behind him that probably went from that block to this block over here that had all the words from the bible on but but he went he went verse by verse through hebrews chapter 10 and it's it's like it, what was impressed upon me is that even like culturally as things change even as a thing from here to there might be different it 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 is that time of studying and preaching god's word that never stops being important for people to understand and that's true for you i don't know if i'm doing a very good job of impressing this upon you today or even saying it the way that i want to say it but but look if you're not in this i mean in it you don't know, you can't possibly know god you can't i mean he reveals himself through his creation so that we know that he's there and there are certain attributes of him his power his creativity just his bigness and the fact that he's like unseen in and of himself those things are revealed like in 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 that aspect of 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 his of his revelation but then there's what theologians call special revelation which which is the the bible the word of god which which is which is really what you need to get to know him and as you begin in genesis and you read in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and you begin to go through all that the real value of all that is you get to know him 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 we're we're living in a day and age where everybody has an opinion about god and nobody has read what he said about himself that's a crisis that's a catastrophe but you and i that are christians you and i that have understood we've got to know this and 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 i look at like our church and as a year goes by it's basically the same stuff here comes labor day there's a picnic right it's summer we're having vacation bible school and there's decorations all over the building and and we're talking about inviting children and everything else right you know thanksgiving's coming there's going to be a dinner downstairs the sunday before thanksgiving you know uh new year's eve there's going to be a fellowship at the church and it's like it's all these things you know second saturday of the month here comes the men's fellowship you know first sunday after labor day youth group starts up again it's all the same stuff the same stuff over but listen the reason for that is church is like a rock in the middle of like this culture the culture is shifting and changing and and everything all the time you know you you if you're my age you know you remember a time when a man marrying a man not to pick on a hot button issue but that was unthinkable even in the secular world now if you speak a word against it you could really suffer some consequences and i'm not trying to be like political or or magnify that issue but what i'm trying to point out is the the values and the thoughts of the culture shift and change all the time here's the rock 
that doesn't move. Here's the thing that doesn't change. And the reason why, like, in the life cycle over a year of a church, you constantly come back to those same things, those Bible studies, those church services, that vacation Bible school, those men's fellowships, those women's fellowships. The reason you keep coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back is because you're coming back to this. This. This is what matters. But people don't always come back to this. And as a result, you get what is in this passage today. You get A, religious leaders that have no idea what the Word of God says about the law, what the Word of God says about the Messiah. And so when Jesus comes along, they think he's a lawbreaker and they want to kill him. But the multitudes, they like to see the miracles, but the multitudes aren't well-versed in the Word of God either. And so when they perceive that there is something to Jesus and the religious leaders are wrong, they're ready to throw Herod out and throw the Romans out and to make Jesus their king right then and there. Both of those were wrong because neither of those had anything to do with this. Do you understand? We need to know our Bibles. We, need, we don't know God if we don't know His Word. We don't know how we ought to live. We don't know what He expects. We don't know what to say to people. We don't know how to handle trouble when it arises, how to handle difficulty. We lose touch with His grace. We lose touch with the, the supreme place of faith in the heart of a person. We lose touch with how He expects us to live. Because when we're not in this, we're not thinking biblically. This ought to shape how we think. Not just what we know, but how we think that we might relate rightly to the God whom reconciliation with was purchased by the blood of His Son. Let me say a short prayer. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for this time that we have together here this morning. Help us to see these important things that are laid out for us in Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's read this, okay? I know we went over verses 1 through 8 already. Verse 9 is a good place to kind of start a new message because it actually mentions that he departed from where he had been before. He had had a controversy over the Sabbath, right? Now he's about to have another controversy over the Sabbath. Verse 9. Now when he had, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them. 
not to make him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will trust. So, so, so there, there you see Kind of, I mean, he speaks and performs, he tries to reason in the synagogue, then performs this great miracle, and the religious leaders want to destroy him. Then he goes out among the multitudes who are following him, and he heals them all. But then he has to tell them, shh, don't, 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 don't tell anybody. Don't, why? Why did he tell them, don't tell anybody? Because, listen, they were ready to make him king right then and there. And, of course, that would blow the whole deal, because that's not why he came. Right? Messiah is coming back and he will be king. They understood that part, but they didn't understand this aspect of it. He didn't come to be king the first time. He came to die. Right? And he came to die a very specific way for a very specific purpose. And then to rise again to purchase salvation for them. Don't, listen, don't, don't, listen, shh. Don't you tell anybody about any of this. Tricky thing when he had a big multitude like that. That's why I called the message the unexpected savior. Right? I mean, the religious leaders expected one thing. The multitudes were an expectation of something else. Thank the Lord that Jesus was what he was. Right? Thank the Lord that Jesus did what he did, what he came to do. Verse 9. Just kind of go through this a bit at a time. The first section of this, verses 9 through 13, I think uh, there, 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 there are three things, that issues that come up that I think are valuable to talk about. And the first one we started to talk about last time I was together with you, two weeks ago. It says that when he had departed from there, he went into the synagogue, and there was a man there who had a withered hand, and they asked him, they, that is the people in the synagogue, asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then, that, that's a quotation of what they said. And then Matthew inserts the interpretive comment, the, the statement of motive that they might accuse him. So they asked him that question because they knew where it was going to go, right? They weren't really looking for Jesus to instruct them concerning the Sabbath, though Jesus did do that. What they were looking to do was to find something. They were nitpicking and finding something that they could say, aha, and destroy Jesus. So Jesus responds to the question, verse 11 says, by teaching them something. And this is where we have to kind of continue where we left off a couple of weeks ago with this discussion about the law. Look what it says. He said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Just with that question, what is Jesus getting at? Their understanding of the law was wrong. Their understanding of God's word was wrong. Because Jesus is pointing something out. The purpose of the commandment concerning the Sabbath was not to prevent people from doing things that were good. As we discussed last time I was here, elsewhere in Scripture, including in the command itself, in Exodus, in the Old Testament, uh, the 
purpose for the Sabbath was what? It was to be a blessing and a gift to men to rest from their labor as God did. God didn't need the rest. At another point, Jesus said, my father and I are always working, right? So are, are God and Jesus Sabbath breakers? I don't think so. But listen, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and then he rested from his labor on the, se- on the seventh. And so even before the commandments, many centuries later, Moses came along and the commandments were given to them. Right there in the very beginning of creation week, the principle at least was established that God worked for six days and rested on the seventh, and man ought to as well. It was a blessing to man. As Jesus himself said elsewhere, man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man. The religious leader's view of that, of course, was the opposite. Men were made for the Sabbath, right? Men were part of the purpose for men being made was so that they could observe these laws that God had commanded. And of course, that's wrong. So Jesus approaches them trying to reason with them. Look, I'm standing here in your synagogue on the Sabbath. There's a man here. He can't use his hand. It would be really good if he could use his hand. Think of, all, think of how it would change his life. Think of how it might change his community's life, his family's life, if he could use both of his hands. Here I am, the only person on the planet who can fix his hand. Right? It doesn't say it in Matthew. But if you read the parallel account in Luke chapter 6, for time's sake, we won't turn there. But Luke chapter 6 reveals Jesus knew their thoughts. Right? It doesn't say it, but Jesus knows their thoughts. So in other words, Jesus knows that the only reason that they're asking this question is they're trying to set him up to destroy him. But Jesus says to them, he tries to reason with them anyway. And he says, says to them, look. I know it's the Sabbath, but I'm here. He's here. There's some good that I can do, right? Do do you really think that the purpose of God's law is fulfilled if I deny what I can do for this man? And then what this man, how his life would be changed? Now look, it's true. Not every person gets healed. Not every person, like people go through their lives with various infirmities and sicknesses. And the man certainly could glorify God by going through the rest of his life with a withered hand and just trust in God's grace. His grace is sufficient. But there was Jesus right there with the power and the capacity and the opportunity to bless this man, bless his family, bless his community. Not to mention, do a wonderful demonstration of the power and grace of God. Right? But he's standing in the midst of people who expected something else. That's the point. Their expectation was, if this man were really of God, he would not heal this man because he would know that he was violating the law. He was violating God's Sabbath. That was their expectation. And so you see, they imposed their own understanding and their own expectations of God's righteousness through the law, which is a righteousness that no one can attain, we know, right? And they imposed that on this entire situation. So they thought they had Jesus. Jesus makes this perfectly reasonable. What's the obvious answer to Jesus' rhetorical question? Um... Is there one man among you 
If he has one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Answer? No. There's not one man among you. No. Every single one of you would go down into the pit and get the sheep and bring it out. Every one of you would do that. And you know it. So he sort of unmasked them a little bit. And really revealing some hypocrisy, right? More reason. Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Look, if, if you know that every single one of you would go down to that pit and bring that sheep out, well, I've got a human being here who has look, a sheep, if it fought long enough, might work his own way out of a pit. This guy can't do anything about his hand. He's just stuck. Isn't a man more valuable than a sheep? You would rescue a sheep on the Sabbath, but you want to destroy me because I want to bless this guy. On the Sabbath. Now, here comes the, the conclusion of the two rhetorical questions comes with the word therefore. See it? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. There's the point. There's the point of diversion of their views. Right? In the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, in the Pharisees' expectation of what the righteousness of God was, it was not lawful to do good on the Sabbath because it's not lawful to do anything on the Sabbath. You follow? Right? But what Jesus points out is, you guys don't understand the purpose for the law at all. You're imposing... By, 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 by saying that it's wrong for me to heal this man on the Sabbath, you're implying to everyone here in this synagogue that it's breaking God's command to do good on the Sabbath. Thereby completely corrupting not only the society and the culture that they were living in, because of all the good that could have been done that probably wasn't, because people were afraid of being put out of the synagogue, but you're also imposing on them an understanding of God that is false. And that's why I started the sermon the way that I did. That's what this really does. The real crime here is that the, 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 the people in the synagogue, by, by, by digging their heels in on this issue the way that they had, were presenting a view and an image of God that was theirs and was not from this book. God cares more that you don't lift a finger on the Sabbath than He does that you're completely incapable of lifting a finger with this hand at all. That's what they were implying. And Jesus is like, that is not the purpose for the law. Hey, let's go deeper with it. What were they really implying? They were implying, you, ready? Listen, everyone, listen, listen. They were implying, you can please God by keeping the law. That's what they were really implying, isn't it? What they were really implying was, this man's a lawbreaker, but we know that the way to please God is to keep the law. Is that what the Bible teaches about the law? That's not what the Bible teaches about the law. The Bible teaches that the law is a completely different purpose, and Jesus points that out. The purpose of the law was not to deny a man good. The purpose of the law was what? To show a man his sin. May I ask you, let's just reason among ourselves here. In what way is anybody's sin 
revealed to them, which is the purpose of the law, in what way is anybody's sin revealed to them by denying healing to this man? It's not. Not. Right? It's completely pointless and useless. So Jesus reasons with them. And I find what it doesn't say next to be profound. What it does not say is any reaction from the people at all. Do you notice that? You read, Jesus says, Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus does not wait to get their opinion on the matter. Jesus has correctly pointed out the spirit of God's law on the Sabbath. And then immediately goes ahead and says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. Let me make three quick points about this for you. Number one, let me just look up a couple of verses here concerning the law. Turn to Galatians chapter 3 with me. Galatians chapter 3. A few verses in this chapter. I could read the whole chapter and, and it would explain it, but for time's sake I won't. But look at, look at verse 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What's the answer to that question? By, by faith, right? In other, words, in other words, you received the Holy Spirit and even witnessed miracles that were done by the Holy Spirit, he says to the Galatian Christians, simply because you believed, not because you kept the Sabbath, not because you got circumcised, not because of any external adherence to the code, the religious code of the law. Right? And, and, and listen, that was just like Abraham. Verse 6, see it? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What's significant about Abraham in that matter? Abraham, you all said things that were probably right, but you all said them with different words and at the same time. So I have no idea what anyone said. But I'm, but I'm, tr but I'm trusting that what you all meant to say was that, well, there's a few things you could say, but the one that I have in my mind is that Abraham was around before there was even a law. Before there was any commandment, Abraham believed God and was justified. Abraham believed God and was counted as righteous. Before the law even came along. That says something about the law, right? It can't justify anyone. God was already justifying the faithful. He was already justifying the believing. And verse 7 is profound. Therefore, know that only those who are of the faith are of faith are of the sons of Abraham. Look at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Boy, how about that? In other words, if you place yourself in a system like the religious leaders in that synagogue did, where, oh, no, 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 you've got to keep the Sabbath, you can't do this thing. Not that they were right even about what the Sabbath really was, right? I mean, Jesus not only corrected 
their understanding of the law, he also corrected specifically their understanding of the Sabbath. We made that point two weeks ago. But uh, if you are going to attempt to justify yourself before God by keeping the law, well, guess what? You're subject to the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? Disobey and die. In the specific, in the specific case of Israel, disobey and you lose the land. And that was really the point of the law. The law never justified a soul before God. But the law, when given, was keep the law and you'll, it'll be well for you and you'll be in the land. But if any individual tries to keep the law in a way to justify himself before God, whether it's circumcision or Sabbath observance or anything else, well, then you place yourself... Listen, you can't just pick the parts of it that you like. That's the point. Oh, I, I, you know, I love to be religious, so I'm going to observe the Sabbath and I'm not going to eat pork and all the males in my family are going to get circumcised and, and we're going to observe this, observe that. We're going to eat this and not eat that. We're going to touch this and we're going to not touch that. Listen, you don't just do that without also subjecting yourself to the curse of the law, which is what? The soul that sins, it shall die. And that's what the people in the synagogue were doing. They were keeping, they had the Messiah in front of them, but they were keeping the people under the curse of the law, rather than letting them see freely the glory of God and the salvation of God which was coming, which had come and was there. Verse 19 in uh, Galatians chapter 3, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. What does that mean that it was added? Well, obviously, the law the principles of the law themselves did not become, they did not spring into existence when God gave the law to Moses. It was already sinful to murder before God said to Moses, you shall not murder. It was already sinful to commit adultery before God said, you shall not commit adultery, right? I mean, it was already from the beginning in the Garden of Eden when the people disobeyed God, Adam and Eve, spiritually they died that day, right? So you have the law then was added. That is, the law was added into a world where God and His righteousness already existed, but the law was added in as like a, 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 a searchlight shining on something in the dark. The law was added in so we could see codified before us that righteousness of God that has eternally existed. The law was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. That seed, of course, was Jesus himself, right? The seed that was promised to Abraham in the old days, in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed as it says in the book of Genesis. The law was given to show people their sins and show people the peril of their sins and the offense of their sins against God until the time that the seed, the promised seed, that is the descendant of Abraham, the Messiah, Jesus, came. So when Jesus came and then suffered and died and bore the punishment and the just wrath against all transgression against the law, Guess what happened to the law? That purpose of showing people their sin, that's as far as it goes. There's no need any longer to circumcise. There's no need any longer to observe those, those, those aspects, those ceremonies of the law. 
right? Really, there's no need to observe any of the law anymore. The whole law, its whole purpose is what? Is to show a man his sin. Now, that does not, of course, mean it's okay to commit adultery and okay to covet. But now it's done for a different reason. We're not trying to avoid adultery and avoid murder and avoid lying and avoid all these things to justify ourselves. Because God has put His Spirit in us, now when we walk by His Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, this book of Galatians says. And when we're filled with His Spirit and we walk in His Spirit, we will, by the power of His Spirit and the leadership of His Spirit and the filling of His Spirit, do those things which are good and pleasing in His sight. Not because a commandment says so, but because He lives in me and controls me and guides me. That's why it's important to be filled with His Spirit. Right? So the purpose of the law then, one last verse in Galatians, verse 24, says... Well, verse 23 says, Before faith came, that is the faith of the gospel, we were kept under guard by the law. Obviously, as we pointed out, before there was a law, people were already justified by faith, Abraham being the example. But before the gospel came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would be afterward would be revealed. Therefore, here's the conclusion of the matter, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. What's a tutor? We think of the word tutor and we think of someone who like is maybe having a hard time in school or something. And so they need someone to take them and maybe take math or science or something and give them a little extra instruction to teach them something that they lack understanding in. It's exactly what the law is. The law is a tutor, a schoolmaster, a teacher to teach us something. What does the law teach us? The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the law teaches us that our ways are sinful. You shall not lie. We've all lied, you know, etc. and so forth. The law teaches us that we are sinful and the law shows us that we cannot save ourselves. The law even shows us the way of salvation. The law shows us that the only way for a person to be saved is not through their own works, but to come to faith in God, faith in the Messiah, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose for the law. Flashback to the synagogue that day. Was that what they understood the purpose for the law to be in the synagogue? They were trying to stop Jesus who had power to heal a man's hand from healing him. That has nothing to do with the purpose of the law. And so Jesus points out to them what? It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. God didn't... God, the purpose of the law was to point out our sin, not to prevent us from doing good for one another on the Sabbath. But their expectations were different. Their expectations of God, their expectations of the religion, their expectations of Messiah were something different. And so they tried to set Jesus up to destroy him. You know, really quick, I really want to share these verses. Turn to me with turn to uh, Colossians chapter two. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Come on, turn there. Colossians chapter two. And verse 11. Colossians 2 and verse 11. In Him you were also circumcised 
with the circumcision made without hands. In other words, not the circumcision prescribed in the law, but a circumcision of the heart. Right? By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Look at this. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Wiped them out. That's a reference to the commandments. That's a reference to the commandments which, which were to keep us under sin. The commandments were to, were to show us our sin and show us our need for salvation. But once God brings us to that place where we trust in Christ and receive that forgiveness and that salvation, that whole set of written requirements which were against us, condemning us and showing us our sin, God wipes them out. They're wiped out. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, let no one judge you in food or drink, or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths. So, even by Paul's time, you understand? Even by Paul's time, which by the time he writes this, is many years after Jesus had died and risen from the dead, and ascended back to heaven, even in Paul's time, there was still an inclination to deal with things like the Sabbath in a strictly religious kind of way and try to forbid people even maybe from doing good on the Sabbath. We're not required to keep the Sabbath the way that the Jews are keeping the Sabbath. What Jesus was facing in that synagogue was something that even the Apostle Paul continued to face. Listen, it was even attempted to impose the very same thing that Jesus was facing in that synagogue. Years later, there was an attempt to impose that very same thing on non-Jews, on Gentiles who believed in Jesus. And what Paul... I mean, it sounds insane when you put it that way, right? But Jesus did not die so that Gentiles would become Jews. Right? Jesus died so that Jews and Gentiles together could be freed from the curse of the law and be reconciled to God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And have forgiveness and the hope and the promise of everlasting life. All one in the same. So... Number two, that's number one, what the passage says about the law. But there's another thing that I think is in this passage. And forgive me if I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but I don't think there is. I'm back in Matthew now. But if you, when you look at this passage, 
there was something that really just struck my soul in Christ's words when he said to them, uh, after he made the illustration of which one of you has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Uh, then he compares the value of sheep with the value of people. And then the conclusion that he makes is this. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So, number one, the view of the law was corrupted. And they were keeping people in darkness. They were keeping people in a religious system whereby they thought their justification before God depended on their own ability to keep the law. But number two, what other thing was what other thing were the religious leaders in the synagogue keeping people from? What's it say? Therefore, it is lawful to what? Do good on the Sabbath. So by imposing their view of the Sabbath on these people the way they did, and even using it to try to trap and destroy Jesus, what were they doing? They were depriving people of two things. Number one, they were depriving them of opportunities to do good for one another, which glorifies God and blesses people. And they were depriving the people who would be the recipients of that good from receiving blessing and possibly having their hearts turned to God through it. So you see, number one, not only were they misinterpreting the law and keeping the people in darkness, but number two, they were cutting off good. In this case, as I've already pointed out, they were cutting off a man receiving healing that undoubtedly would have changed his life, his family's life, and his community's life for good. And I thought about it in that perspective, and I thought to myself, my second point here is that there is nothing bad. Ready? Here's why I get paid the big bucks. You ready? There's nothing bad about doing good. Thank you. Thank you. Otherwise, they would call it bad. Ah, see, you guys should be pastors too. All the complicated things. Well, a little humor aside. We know that it is bad for a person to try to justify themselves before God by doing good. Because that is futile. That can't happen. Because the goodness of God, the standard of God, is something no one can attain. And that use of the concept of good, that God is good, is something that we all fall dismally, immeasurably short of. Right, And what happens, and this has been true my entire life as an evangelical Christian, what happens is we preach so strongly that a man cannot save himself by good works. And you know, you've heard me preach about this many times over the years. So get ready for it again, which is part of my job is to keep coming back to these things, by the way. But we preach so strongly against good works that we sometimes continue to preach against them even after a person is saved. Listen, it is wrong 
to preach about any value of good works to the lost. It is not wrong to preach about good works to the saved. It's essential to preach about good works to the saved because the Bible does so much. Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount to believers and told them to let their light shine before men that they may see their what? Their good works and glorify God in heaven. We're introduced to Dorcas in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, a woman who was well reported among the people because of her good works and all of the things that she made. That's the namesake for Tabitha's ministry here in the church, by the way. In 1 Timothy 2.10, women are told, don't worry about your outward apparel and your adornment and costly pearls and clothing and jewelry and all this stuff, but that which concerns women who profess godliness, clothe yourself in what? Good works. So good works. Women are told, stop fussing so much about your appearance and clothe yourself in what really matters for a woman who professes to know God, and that's clothe your life in good works. Right? Widows, in 1 Timothy 5, are only accepted in the number who were cared for by the church if they were reported to have given themselves to good works. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the rich are told not to be haughty in this life, but to be rich in good works. In Titus chapter 2, Paul tells Titus, make yourself a pattern of good works for those other younger men who are going to watch you and follow you. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, before we're told to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, we're told that the purpose for that assembling of ourselves together is to stir up love and good works. We're supposed to be in here stirring up good works. And love among the lost, certainly warning them that they can't save themselves or justify themselves by good works. But among the saved, we should be constant. In fact, in Titus, Paul tells Titus, I want you to affirm these things constantly. And what he's talking about is that our people would maintain good works. So, and you've heard me say this many times. But that's what happens is in this synagogue... In, in Jesus' day, he's in there, and they're putting their need to see the law legalistically observed over good, a good work that could be done for someone. And Jesus is basically saying to them, it is lawful. Listen, notice what he said. Notice Jesus' use of words. He doesn't say it's good to do good works on the Sabbath. He says it's what? Lawful. Because that's what they were accusing. They were accusing him of breaking the law. Breaking the law is what? Sin. They were accusing Jesus of sin. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. It is perfectly lawful to do good works on the Sabbath. You know? And listen, the life of a Christian ought to be wrapped up, once we've been saved, ought to be wrapped up in doing good works. Works which bless others, Works which bring joy to our own souls. Works which, which uh, bring glory to God. As Jesus said, you let your light shine before men. There are things to guard against when we walk in good works. We want to be careful that we're not feeling a sense of self-justification. Um, I was just doodling on the piano here this morning because I was thinking about these things before anybody was here. And I was singing through the old Keith Green song, Oh Lord, you're beautiful and... There's a part in the chorus of that song that says, And when I'm doing well, 
let me never seek a crown, right? And and that's that's and and the original version before he recorded it in the studio said, and when I'm doing well, let me never make a sound is actually what he said. You know, Keith Green in that song. And that's one of the things we have to guard against is that when we do good, we're not letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing, right? So there certainly are some things to guard against. But our lives ought to be filled with good that we're doing for one another and good that we're doing in our community, good that we're doing for people in need. All of this, number one, it brings glory to God. And number two, it blesses people. Good is always good. If you have a problem with it, Stop calling them good works and start calling them what you really think they are, which is evil works. If you don't think good works are good, remove it from your lexicon, personally, and start calling them what you really think they are, which is evil works. Right? So, Dorcas did evil works. Right? And, you know, uh, Titus is told, make yourself a pattern of evil works. No. They're called good works because they're good. What, what does Ephesians chapter 2 say about good works in the life of a believer? It says, God planned out even before you were born, even before you were saved. God charted out and planned out that you would walk in what? Good works. We are His workmanship created in... Notice the play on words. We're His workmanship. So we're, we are God's good work. You understand? Because God saved us, He redeemed us, He called us to Himself, He regenerated us, He gave us everlasting life, He made us new creations, He came into us by the Holy Spirit, and we are the temple of God. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We ought to fill up our lives with good works, knowing that before we were ever even saved, before we were ever even born, a sovereign God who knows everything charted out for us that we would walk in them. In other words, God's preordained purpose for your life as a Christian is that your life would be filled with good works which bless people and honor and exalt Him. Is your life Thus, that's the question we ought to ask ourselves. We are not called as Christians to just enjoy our lives, raise our kids, hang out with our friends. We are called to labor on behalf of need where it is needed. We are called to work and to serve, to be used up, Square one, when it comes to good works, is preaching the gospel to other people. That's the number one good work that we're all called to do, is to share the words of Christ with other people. You got this picnic coming up next week? You should be banging on people's doors and saying, look, come on out. Food, fun, sing a few songs, and listen, the words of life. Do you understand what I'm saying? God charted out before you were even born that you would be involved in your His work project. Now your work project is to walk in those things that He charted out beforehand that you would even that you would do. Now go out and be involved. This is not a it's not a good work to sit here and listen to me. Anybody can do that. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Don't misunderstand that. <laughs> no, nobody leave yet. I commend you that you're here. Right. 
It's not a great work for me to stand here and talk. But we're to stir it up in here, right? And then go out there and do it. Go out there and do it. Walk in it. Fill up on it. Good works are called good works because they're good and they're work. So go work them for good. For the glory of God. For the good of people. Fill up your life with that. There are all sorts of things that war against that. Bad theology, like in the synagogue. The Sabbath. Huh. Maybe he'll heal him on the Sabbath, and then we've got him. So there's bad theology that thwarts good works. Sometimes our own idleness. Sometimes just we just sit and stew in ourselves. This is unhealthy. Proverbs chapter 18 says, The man who isolates himself rages against all sound wisdom. We isolate ourselves. We sit, we do nothing. And our minds and our spirits decay. And what's thwarted? The good works that God prepared beforehand that you would walk in. You understand? What else thwarts good works? Discouragement. Discouragement. Discouragement that comes when a person is endeavoring to do good works. When a person is endeavoring to serve the Lord and they realize they are discouragingly alone. We're not called to do these things alone. You understand? It's not... People my whole life have been talking about how 10% of people do 90% of the, the work in a church. And you know, the work that a church does is not the stuff that's done here. Because there's very little to do here. You know, I mean, I preach, I play music, there's some people that clean the building and we do different things. The work of Christianity is done out there. Sometimes we'll use the facility to do out there work here, like our picnic next week, right? Invite some people so they can hear the gospel, right? That's out there work going out there and getting them and bringing them to a place where they can be blessed and hear the word. But what happens is people grow discouraged when they realize, I'm trying to do this, but it doesn't seem like anybody else is. Now you go back to all that talk about the body that I've done over the past few weeks. We have hands and we have feet and we have ears and we have eyes and we have hair and we have toes and we have all sorts of different parts of the body and every part has to do its part. If my right hand tries to do everything... And I don't use my feet to walk, and I don't use my left hand. Listen, this is going to wear out. Burn out. So there's, there's things that can thwart good works done among believers, and you have to fight against it. Jesus fought against it. Jesus said to them, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, waited for no response, and then healed the guy. Uh, and by the way, Another thing, I want to say this to you. Another thing that thwarts good works is the discouragement of not thinking that the work you do means anything. That's bad. Did not Jesus say that even every cup of cold water given in in His name would not lose its reward? Yes or no? Yes or no? Right? 
Galatians, which we read from before, chapter 6 says, Let us not grow weary in... Who knows that verse? Let us not grow weary in well-doing or doing good. Don't... Now there, that's not just an admonishment to do good. That's an admonishment to keep doing good and not get discouraged, not get tired out from it. Let us not grow weary in doing good. What's the rest of it? For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. There is a promise that in due season, if you're faithful in doing good, you will reap if you don't lose heart. What does that imply? That implies you're going to spend a lot of time in your life doing good and not seeing anything for it. There would be no need for Paul to make that statement in Galatians if it were not expected that the, 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 the typical experience of the Christian who seeks to be obedient to God was that he would use his life to serve God and maybe never see anything come from it. But the word is, let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, when's due season? Good, nobody answered me because you don't know and neither do I. Due seasons when God says it is. In due season you will reap if you don't lose heart. See, that's another thing that can cause us from not doing good is losing heart. Getting discouraged. Everyone in a church... Now, now here's one of the big ways that church I was in last week is different than this one. I don't. I, I loved what I heard and what I experienced in that church last week. This is not a bad thing. This is just a different thing. I know that I could go to that church for five years and never speak a word to anybody. Right? There are advantages and disadvantages to that. You might think, well, what could possibly be the advantage to that? Believe it or not, there are some. I'm not going to bother with that now. In a church like this, that's not possible if you're faithful. I mean, if you come here twice a year, maybe. But if you're doing, if you're not forsaking the assembling of yourself together, and you're here, you come every week, and you're involved, and you're, you're pressing in, you're not going to be able to disappear from a place like this for very long before somebody, somebody notices. Someone. You have a responsibility in that. You know, you have to be faithful, right? If you're not, if you're not faithful, then it is probably possible to escape for a while. But God, if you're faithful, you know, to it, then you're not going to be able to escape it for a while. Because of that dynamic that exists here and doesn't exist in the other place, we have the capacity, deliberately or passively accidentally, to encourage and discourage one another. True or false? Right? And you've heard me say this before too. That's what a lot of preaching is, you know. A lot of preaching is just following God's Word and restating things that God's Word restates. Because God's Word, you get to know the Bible, you realize it says a lot of the same things over and over again. Why? Because they need to be said over and over again. Our participation, our dedication... Our prioritization, our consistency, our showing up, our being there, our contributing, our helping encourages others to do the same. 
our withholding of our presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, I mean, our withholding of our presence, our withholding of our work, our, our withholding of our sacrifice, our giving, our withholding of anything. I mean, everything we have is given to us by God. Has the capacity to discourage others. You don't have to do anything to discourage people. There's a, see, that's the trick about discouragement. There's a lot of things you can do to discourage people, but you don't have to do anything to discourage people. You can just, you can just turn a deaf ear, a blind eye. You can just walk away. You can just blow off things that you ought to be part of. With no thought for the effect that it has on the people who are trying. A church, a local church, and listen, this is where that church in Virginia can kind of take it easy a little bit. Because if some people don't show up, there will be a several hundred others to fill in for them. Right? Not here. God doesn't raise up. And I got news for you, by the way. The statistics are, even though you may think to yourself, man, here's a church. How many people are sitting? I mean, count all the kids downstairs. Maybe there's 70 people here today, maybe. Listen. You may think to yourself that like, you're like some dying breed because you go to a little church like this. It is still more, more than 50% of churchgoers in America. And this includes every kind stripe of, of supposed church. But more than 50% of churchgoers in America go to churches that have 100 people or less. Did you know that? It's true. And it's especially true in the evangelical world. Among little, tiny little, non-denominational churches like this one. There are thousands of them. What happens is, we need to encourage each other because my participation... Listen, you, 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 you step out and take a risk coming to a church like this. Because you walk into this church, you're walking into a place where you're going to be needed. <laughs> I, told, I could walk into that church in Virginia and nobody's going to need me. I guarantee you, except for Jonathan... Nobody knows that I'm not there today. Right? So, you walk into a church like this and say, I want to go to church here. You're walking into a place where you're needed. If nothing else, your presence, your smile, your prayer, your hi, how are you, your let's have coffee together, your, your name on the picnic sheet in the background, shameless plug, but you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Right? You try to plan something and it's like, we're trying to have some fellowship and bring some people in. And you go look at the sign-up sheet and you see your name and two others. What do you think that does? Do you think that has no effect on other people in a church this size? There aren't 3,000 other people who are going to take your place. There's you. And we're called to good works. And it may seem like I've gone down the road from Matthew chapter 12, but I haven't. I'm still right there. Because these people who said to Jesus, 
well, they actually they didn't, they didn't get a chance to say anything to him. They just had thoughts of consternation and destruction in their hearts against him. What they were doing is they were cutting off the good works that could be done in that synagogue. What a, how sad. You know what Jesus did? Jesus did what Jesus always did. He didn't care what they thought. He did what was right. Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. I wonder what his life became after that. I, want, I don't know how people greeted each other in that culture. But, you know, we greet each other with a handshake. And I don't know, what, I don't know which hand it was that was withered. But, but, but I, wonder, I, wonder if, I wonder if he could, like, shake hands with people. If he was married, there are probably things he could help his wife with that he was never able to before. There's probably a lot of heavy burdens and stuff that she had to shoulder because her husband had a withered hand. Now he could help, right? There are probably, he probably depended upon other people for things that now he could turn around and be a blessing to them. All this, all this because of Jesus' wonderful, simple statement, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's good to do good and lawful to do good and correct and proper and God-ordained for us to do good in our lives. Hello? Yes. Uh, third point. Not only did they misinterpret the law and keep people in darkness... Not only did they obscure the value of doing good, but what else? What other obvious thing were they pulling the blanket over people's eyes with? Jesus revealing his glory. I mean, all the stuff about the law, that's all important. All the stuff about doing good, that's important. But Jesus was revealing his capacity to save people by doing this healing. And they were keeping the people in blindness from seeing that. This was the Savior. He was an unexpected Savior. Because they expected something else. But this was the one who could save them. Real quick. We're almost done. I'm going to get you out in like a minute or two. Go to Mark chapter 2. Come on, come on, come on. Mark chapter 2. This is a passage, a parallel to something we already read in Matthew. Mark chapter 2. He entered the Capernaum synagogue, verse 1 says, after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. He preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic, paralyzed man, who was carried by four men. And when they couldn't come near him because of the crowd, they ripped the roof off. Wow. Wow. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was laying. When Jesus saw their faith, 
He said to the paralytic, rise and walk. No, come on, somebody say no. No, 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 no. That's not what he said. When he saw their faith, what did he say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven you. Son, your sins are forgiven you. Right? And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? I don't know if that's what it sounded like in their minds, but that's, that's, like, that's what it sounds like it should sound like, all right? But immediately when Jesus perceived this in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Hey, which is easier? To save the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven you. Or arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son... Here's the key. That you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth, what? To forgive sins. That you may know that I have the power to save you from your sins. Get up! Walk! That was the point of Jesus healing people. Was to show... Not just the healed, but to show everyone that he could save them from their sins. That was the point. And in the synagogue, in the story in Matthew chapter 12 that we've read today, where was that in the story? It's not even in the story. It's not even there. It's not even part of the story because the whole air is so thick with consternation and consternation and condemnation. In an attempt to judge and destroy Jesus. That's what their false expectations did. Their false expectations twisted and misinterpreted the purpose of the law, cut off good from being done in the synagogue, and obscured the real path to eternal life, which was through faith in Jesus the Messiah. This is why, brothers and sisters, it is important that you read and know your Bibles. They did not know, nor did they believe the Word of God. And so when Jesus showed up, this is what He meant. What we read. You and I, we don't know anything about God. You don't know anything about Jesus. If you don't know and believe what His Word says, if you don't learn to think biblically. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, dear Lord God, we thank you for your word which you have given to us here today. We thank you for this time that we have. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to not impose our own views upon you like we see in that synagogue so long ago. Help us to read and to study and to know your word. Help us to read and to study and to know you and worship you according to knowledge and to truth. I pray, Lord God, for anyone who may be in here today who needs salvation, who needs the forgiveness of sins, who needs eternal life. I pray, Lord, through the preaching of your word that they have seen that by grace you save those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that they may come to you in their hearts and believe and receive you today. I pray for all of us who are believers, Lord God, that we would look upon you, our Lord Jesus, with wonder and love and adoration and desire to give our lives in service to you. Thank you for this and so much more. In Jesus' name, amen.